Please remain standing for their scripture reading this morning. This comes from Jonah, chapter 4, verse 1 through verse 11. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head, to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, angry enough to die. And then the Lord said, you're concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and for which you did not grow. It came from being in a night and perished in a night. And I should not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also many animals. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Sharon, thank you for reading our lesson this morning, and grace and peace to each of you in the name of Christ. Grateful to Adam, uh, to Ryan, and all of our musicians. A beautiful, beautiful anthem, and I could just hear some of you in your mind saying, I wish your sermons could be as brief as those anthems, um, which I will attempt to do today so that we can get to the table. It's a peculiar ending. We've been working through Jonah for four weeks now, these four chapters, 48 verses, and it's one of those times where in this series we've been able to read the entire text. When you're doing a study of Luke, you can't really read all the chapters and all the verses, but in Jonah, with just four chapters, we've read the entire book together. And Sharon, thank you for concluding by reading the entire fourth chapter, the 11 verses. But I have to tell you, I'm a little annoyed by the ending of this book. The book of Jonah doesn't conclude with any divine command or any eternal edict. It ends with a question. In fact, it concludes with three questions. And the funny thing is, these questions are not posed by the prophet to God. They're posed by God to the prophet. That's different. Of course, we know from our study that the context of this entire book is one of anger. Jonah is as mad as a wet hen with God, and I get it, and so do you. He's been commissioned 
to a task that he doesn't want to a city that he doesn't like. And so instinctively, initially, he resists, he runs. But after that little storm at sea, and after the man eating fish, it sort of changes his course. And I get that too, that would have done it for me. He wades into enemy territory and preaches judgment. We talked about his sermon last week, eight words, just eight words. 40 days more and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, I don't know because I don't know Jonah, but I think it must have been a pleasing theme to this prophet because, frankly, he wanted Nineveh destroyed. I don't know if you've noticed it or not. I've noticed it before that sometimes, just sometimes, angry young prophets get a little too giddy about fire and brimstone. And we need a little bit of that, but not with a smile on the preacher's face when he judges you. And so it was with Jonah. His angst was not due to a lack of response in Nineveh. To the contrary, the Ninevites were totally responsive. They heard and they responded and they repented of their sin. God had mercy on them and forgave them. And that should have filled this prophet's heart with joy, but not Jonah. He had a hissy fit. I want you to listen again to his protest to God. I knew this was what you would do. That's why I fled to Tarshish in the first place. I know that you're a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. I get it. And that you're always ready to relent from punishing sinners. But Jonah wants revenge. He doesn't want mercy. And he becomes so bitter that even the whale that swallowed him had a Malox moment and spewed him out on shore. So angry, he becomes suicidal. This is embarrassing. And he prays to die. Or as we said last week, Jesus, just kill me now. That word anger occurs no less than five times in the 11 verses, Sharon, that you read. The Hebrew word is karal. It means hot-nosed. It means flaring nostrils. I mentioned this last week and several wives came out and said, yes, we can see that from time to time in our husbands. When the nose, the, the flaring, there's this rage. And frankly, I think that Jonah may have been a loose cannon. But what's interesting to me is how God responds to him. He doesn't reprimand him, he doesn't rebuke him. That's what you think God would do. He questions him. Is it right that you are angry? It's so interesting. God often speaks to us, not in the imperative, not the shoulda, coulda, wouldas, but the inquisitive. God questions us. Some of you know the name Isidore Rabi, Jewish Nobel Prize winner in physics, brilliant man, man of faith, who was once asked by a reporter why he became a scientist. He replied, my mother made me a scientist without ever knowing it. He explained that every other child would come home from school and be asked by their parents, what did you learn today? But he said, my mother used to say, Izzy, did you ask a good question today? And that made all the difference in my life. And I discovered that asking good questions 
makes me a good scientist. I want to suggest to you that what makes for a good scientist also makes for a good disciple, makes for a good teacher, makes for a good lawyer, a doctor, choir director, musician, mentor, pastor. It was Ronald Heifetz in his wonderful little book, Leadership Without Easy Answers, who defined leadership like this. Leadership is the ability to ask the right questions. I was thumbing through the Old Testament the other day and I was amazed. It's curious to me how many questions God asks in the scripture. What's that in your hand, Moses? Whom shall I send, he said to a prophet. Can these bones live again, he said to Ezekiel. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, he asked of Job. Questions, inquisitive And the Son of God does the same thing in the New Testament. Jesus does. Why do you call me Lord and don't do what I tell you to do? Do you want to get well? Why are you so afraid? Do you love me more than these? If you only love those who love you, what reward will you receive? And here's my favorite question. Why do you look for a speck in your brother's eye and disregard the plank in your own. When you trace the ministry of Jesus, you discover Jesus is not just out giving answers, he's asking questions. Why? Because he's probing, he's prodding, he's engaging us to think, to discern, to contemplate. I think of Socrates, who had a habit of asking disconcerting questions. And isn't it interesting to this day, persistent questioning in search of clarity is known as the Socratic method, so that he would turn a Q and A into a Q and Q. This is so Jewish, it's rabbinical. In fact, with Socrates, it was because of this and other things that he was put to trial by the Athenians and accused of corrupting young people and sentenced to death because he asked too many questions. You know the one in your classroom, you know the one in your office, too many questions, and some of us were raised in the church and told sometimes in Sunday school, ours is not to question. But that's completely unbiblical. Indeed, God has a Q and Q with Jonah. Is it right for you to be so angry? I was reading a book by David Brooks the other day, And he asked two questions in a particular piece of our culture. Number one, why are we so afraid? And number two, why are we so angry? The scriptures talk a lot about anger. You see this in the wisdom writer, of course, Proverbs 14, 29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but one with a hasty temper exalts folly. Or how about Proverbs 15, 18? Those who are hot-tempered stir up strife, but those who are slow to anger, calm contention. Or my favorite, Proverbs 22, 24. Make no friends with those prone to anger and do not associate with hotheads. Jesus himself talked about it. If you're angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment, he said. 
If you insult a sister or brother, you'll be liable to the religious council. And if you look at someone and say, what a fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. Even Jesus' brother, James, in that little epistle, says in chapter 1, verse 19, let everybody be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, because your anger does not produce God's righteousness. It was Mark Twain who said, anger is an acid that can do more harm to the vessel in which it is stored than to the vessel in which it is poured. And how true it is. Is it right to be that angry? That's the first question. There are two other questions in chapter 4 where after Jonah had preached in Nineveh for 40 days, what does he do? He exits the city limits. He finds a remote place on the east side where he can watch what's to become of the city. He's still hoping for destruction, by the way. He's hot and bothered, and so God provides him a vine with shade. I love this. In spite of the fact that Jonah deserves something different, God is comforting his prophet. He gives him a bush, a vine for shade, which pleases Jonah. Now he's happy. He was angry, now he's happy, but it doesn't last because the next day, a worm, a God-appointed worm. Isn't it interesting? God, God uses a storm, a fish, and a worm and appoints the worm and the worm promptly eats the root and the vine withers. And notice here that Jonah is more distressed about the dying plant than he is the population of Nineveh. This is Jewish humor at this point. This is really kind of pitiful. And here God poses his second question. Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the vine? <laughs> and then God goes for the jugular. He says, Jonah, you're concerned about a plant that you didn't sow it came up overnight and died the next day. And here's the third question. God speaking. Should I, the Lord, not be concerned about Nineveh, where there are 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Question mark. Mic drop. It's over. That's it. That's the end. I'm annoyed. I need some answers. And God ends with a question mark. I sometimes wish I could counsel with my theology degree the biblical writers and help them understand that it's not questions that we need, it's answers. What did Jonah say? How did he reply? We have no idea. Because apparently, God wants you to finish that story. Apparently, there is a Jonah chapter 5, according to me. The ball is now in my court with that question. But what bothers me is not the last question. It's not the final question. It's the implied question in the third question, which is simply this. If the Lord God is so concerned about people who are spiritually ignorant, ignorant and indifferent, then why aren't I concerned too? 
That's the question. Why am I more critical than compassionate? Why am I more angry than empathetic? Why are we more forthright than forgiving? Why are we more judgmental than generous? And here's the one that keeps me up at night. Davis, why are you more like Jonah than Jesus? That's Jonah chapter five, and the ball is in our court. I wanna close with this story before we come to the altar from a book called Proof, I love the subtitle, Finding Freedom Through the Intoxicating Joy of Irresistible Grace. That's a mouthful, I love the title. Co-authored by two pastors, one of whom is a theological professor and a father who tells this story about an adopted daughter. I share it with you in closing. I never dreamed that taking a child to Disney World could be so difficult, or that such a trip could teach me so much about God's outrageous grace. Our middle daughter had been previously adopted by another family. I'm sure this family had good intentions, but they never quite integrated this adopted child into their family of biological children. And after a couple of difficult years, they dissolved the adoption and we ended up welcoming this eight-year-old girl into our home. For some reason, whenever our daughter's previous family vacationed at Disney World, they took their biological kids with them, but they left their adopted daughter with a family friend. And in her little mind, this happened because she did something wrong that precluded her presence on the trip. And so he writes, by the time we adopted her, she had seen pictures of the Magic Kingdom, but she had never actually entered the gates. And once I found out about this history, I made plans to take her next time to a speaking engagement in Florida where we could visit Disney World. He said, I thought I had mastered the Disney drill. I knew from previous trips that the prospect of seeing cast members in oversized mouse and duck costumes somehow turned kids into squirming bundles of emotional instability. But what I didn't expect was how the prospect of visiting this dream world would produce downright devilish behavior in our newest daughter. In the weeks leading up to our trip, she would steal food when a simple request would have gained the snack. She lied when it would have been easier to tell the truth. She whispered insults that were crafted to hurt her older sibling. And as we drew closer to the trip, her behavior, her mutinies multiplied to the point where a couple of days before we left, I pulled her into my lap to talk through the latest escapade but before I said a word, she looked at me and said, I know what you're doing. You're not gonna take me to Disney World, are you? He said the thought hadn't actually crossed my mind, but her behavior suddenly started to make sense to me. She could not earn her way to the Magic Kingdom. She had tried and failed that test several times before. So she was living in a way that placed her as far as possible from the most magical place on the face of the earth. In retrospect, he said, I'm embarrassed to admit, but in that moment, I was tempted to turn her fear into my own advantage. 
I almost said, look, sweetie, if you don't start behaving, you're right, we're not going to take you. But by God's grace, I didn't say that. And instead, I asked her a question. Is this trip something we're doing as a family, he asked. Yes, she nodded. And are you a part of this family? Again, yes, she nodded. Then you're going with us. We're not leaving you behind. Now he said, I'd like to say that her behavior improved after that moment, but it didn't. And all the way to Lake Buena Vista, she was a lot. She was a pain. But still, we kept our promise, took her to the park. Typical Disney day, overpriced tickets, overpriced meals, long lines with just enough manufactured magic to consider going back someday. But in our hotel room that night, a very different child emerged. She was exhausted, pensive, a little weepy, but her month-long facade of rebellion had faded. And so when bedtime rolled around, I prayed with her, I held her in my arms, and I asked her one final question. Sweetie, how was your first day at Disney World? And she snuggled up to her stuffed unicorn, and after a moment, she said, Daddy, I finally got to go to Disney World, but it wasn't because I was good. It was because I'm yours. Not because I'm good, but because I'm yours. That's the gospel. That's outrageous. That's, that's what Jonah would learn, and that's what I'm still trying to figure out. It's outrageous. One of our fifth graders on the affirmation retreat yesterday came through the line and received the bread and the cup and then got right back in the line. <laughs> he did it again. <laughs> and when Reverend Casey said, why did you do it again? And he said, because it was so good the first time. <laughs> There's a table with your name on it and grace is on the menu and it's all you can eat. But you're invited not because we're good, but because we're his. And that is absolutely outrageous. In Jesus' name, amen.